Thank you very much, Samuel. A very, very good afternoon. My name is Leonard, and I am a member of the Say Yes to Justin Club. <laughs> I also... <laughs> Uh, thank you, thank you for the warm introduction uh, by Samuel as well. So I was telling the panelists or the members of this chat that this particular chat will have all the answers for today's session. <laughs> now, right, wrong, good, bad, that remains to be seen, but you know, I do hope that uh, we'll have an engaging conversation. So it has been an insightful and inspiring day, and it's an honour to be able to round off with this chat. We started off this morning learning about peers, learning about circles, and how can a small group be a unit of transformation. We went on to places where we learned that people need space to be able to make the place, right? And then we just finished one on platforms, and we heard a lot about trust, right? And how sometimes we need to be able to do first, you know, not so much ask for permission, but seek forgiveness. Now, what is the extent of that forgiveness? It's an ongoing conversation. But as I was thinking about a very light-hearted way to introduce the panel or this fireside chat, I have um, the dawn of a new era. <laughs> dawn Yip, who is the... You, you had to see it coming. She's the coordinating director of the SG Partnerships Office at the Ministry of Culture, Community and Youth. Right, the office spearheads the Singapore Together movement in partnership with uh, public agencies and the people of Singapore. Nice touch. We also have uh, Mr. Participate, right? Larry Young, who is a designer and community organizer and a strong advocate for participatory and community-centric design in Singapore. He is currently the executive director of the 10-year-old Participate in Design, a non-profit design. Okay, clap, 10 years old. <laughs> right, a non-profit uh, design organization that facilitates the integration of community-based participatory processes into urban space design and planning. And of course, we have the queen of Queenstown. <laughs> Miss Melissa Kui, who's currently the chair of the Resilient Cities Network. Uh, apart from her time uh, as the CEO of the National Volunteer and Philanthropy Centre, where she birthed the vision of a city of good, uh, she has also co-founded and chaired and advised many zaggy, not zig, many zaggy non-profit and community initiatives to offer fresh perspective on youth and women's uh, leadership development, uh, promote radical inclusion as a means towards empowerment, and develop network of networks strategies. Right? She has received many national and international awards uh, for her service, but is, as I said, most at home in Queenstown, where she's seeking to learn and practice being a good neighbor. Okay, thank you very much. This is a very interesting group. Now, let's kick off with Dawn. And we have been hearing a lot about this term, collaborative governance. Could you help us unpack that a little, please? 
Sure, thanks, Leonard. And hi, everyone. Uh, I'm sorry I couldn't come any earlier, but it's really a joy to be here. I see so many familiar faces. Basically, my first five minutes coming in the room was just exchanging hugs all around. Uh, I didn't realize this, but I'm also a member of the SYTJ Club. So thank you, Justin, for this invitation uh, to be here and to be on a panel with friends. And I do have a deck of slides, but really, we've just been asked to give a quick few minutes, so I'll just cover two quick slides. And the two things I want to say is uh, our approach to collaborative governance in Singapore has evolved over time. So I'll give you a quick window on the development over time. And then the second is just a simple framework that gives a lens on how we're approaching collaborative governance today. So just two slides. The first one, I mentioned development over time. It's to say that um, engaging with citizens, partnering with citizens has been something that has been there since the start. Uh, Singapore was born in the 1960s, so was the People's Association. And in the early days, the emphasis was, of course, to build relationships among people. PA was instrumental in that. In the 1980s, a big milestone was the formation of the Feedback Unit. It's now called REACH, uh, Reaching Every, Every Active Citizen for Our Home. I think that's what it stands for. Um, it used to be called the Feedback Unit, and as the old name suggests, uh, REACH is really an entity that aims to connect with citizens to collect feedback on how government is doing on, on any kind of issues uh, that citizens care about. The word feedback suggests that it's a backward-looking thing. That means something's already happening, you're looking back at the thing and giving views. And so the next evolution, uh, which perhaps is a natural evolution, is looking forward. So in the 1990s onwards, a lot of our national engagements aimed to involve people ahead of any policies being announced. Maybe something more like a feed-forward process. Singapore 21, Remaking Singapore, Our Singapore Conversation, all of these were national agenda-setting exercises. And here is the government really trying to involve citizens in shaping policies and programs before they're even created. In 2019, something interesting happened. Uh, it was also I rejoined government, that's the interesting thing, <laughs> to do Singapore together. Uh, this was a movement announced by DPM Heng Sui Kiat. And it was really a commitment on the part of the political leadership to say, we really want to uh, partner with citizens, not just do things for our citizens, but also do things with citizens. And since then, uh, we've tried to take this approach as far as possible with many of the programs and policies that have been in the works. So if you think about some of the major national uh, policies, like the Green Plan, this is our sustainability agenda, the Women's Conversation recently, our long-term plan review, which is how we uh, master plan the land use in Singapore, all of these have taken a co-creation element where possible. And of course, the latest ones of these is uh, the 2022-23 exercise, the Ford Singapore exercise, which was launched by DPM Lawrence Wong last year to review Singapore's social compact. And we've taken this partnership approach for Ford Singapore as well. So this is just to give you a historical perspective on how uh, we've viewed citizen engagement over time. And if I were to sum it up as a motto, I would say we've gone from consultation to also co-creation. That's the big shift. So let me just go to uh, one more slide and then I'll pause there, which is a framework to help explain what we mean uh, when we say that you know, uh, we want to partner with citizens. So we envision uh, engagement in six uh, different ways. All of them 
are good. There's no one approach that's better than the other. Uh, on the left, going from, I guess, your left to right, transact is when you offer services to the citizens. For instance, when you go fill up a form to apply for an HDB flat, you get the flat. That's a transaction. And a good transaction is when you get it uh, timely and it's efficient and you get what you need from the service. Inform, the next box down, is when you give citizens the information they need to uh, live their lives, to you know, uh, understand what's going on. You also want it to be timely, to be accurate, um, to be interesting if possible. And then the next one is consult. When you're going to uh, put in place a policy or program, you put it out there, you get citizens' views, you take their views in, and then you uh, tweak, change uh, the policies with the citizens' view. Those three boxes, uh, I'll just make an assertion, you are welcome to disagree with it, but the assertion is that uh, the Singapore government has done a reasonably good job at transacting, informing, and consulting citizens, and we're, of course, improving as we go along as well. The green boxes on the right side of the spectrum is probably where uh, the government, as well as the people of Singapore, can exercise their muscle a bit more, can grow in the space. So building consensus is when there's different points of view and you bring people into a room together to try and work out common ground. And even if you can't find the common ground, at least you know someone on the other side of the aisle and can at least form a relationship of trust to say, okay, I don't agree with you, but I know you're a person of good faith. Okay, so that's building consensus. Co-delivering is offering a public good together with the citizen or partner on the ground. Delivering, so any number of uh, government volunteer programs uh, fall neatly in this, is this box. And then co-create is upstream before a program is even developed to bring citizens, partners, stakeholders uh, on board with you to shape the program together. So what we're trying to do uh, in the Singapore government is to grow our capabilities across all three, all six uh, boxes, and particularly the green boxes, which is where the collaborative governance space is. And so I would just um, leave this slide with you. Um, I'm happy to take questions later. Uh, I would just say one thing, which is to say that um, the government is learning how to do this well, so be patient with us. And also an invitation to you, as the people of Singapore, as partners, potential partners, stakeholders, to also do your part. When there's a space for you to step into, step into it. Don't wait to be asked. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dawn. I think that was a very, very nice segue uh, into our next uh, speaker's sharing. I was just going to say one take away from this particular slide. Okay, the slide that you had earlier was uh, how, you know, in the six areas, it's not right, not wrong, but there's a right time and a right place for the different approach. Now, with that, uh, I'd like to head over to Larry. And, you know, we've heard about the importance of participation, right, of stepping in, stepping forward. Uh, could you share a little bit about some of your ongoing projects? Yeah, so uh, hi everyone, uh, I'm Larry from Participate in Design. So for people who are not familiar with us, uh, we are a small non-profit design organization that really facilitates citizen engagement with government agencies, communities to co-create spaces or even community solutions. Now, um, Dawn was very interesting because she mentioned a lot about collaborative governance. But I think for us, over the job that we do for the past 10 years, I think for collaborative governance to really work, I think we also need to make sure that our citizens are equipped with the right capability and also the knowledge. So over the past 10 years, I think one big thing that we realised in terms of, you know, empowerment, community engagement, and citizen engagement, I think is that capacity building is one big thing. Because 
you want citizens to make more informed decisions. So in a lot of projects, for example, a recent project we did uh, with the Centers for Livable Cities, uh, we actually co-created some solutions to combat climate change, right? And the whole process, you know, us as an intermediary player, you know, do not really create the solution for them. But instead, you know, we get the citizens to work in collaborations with our government agencies, with academics, you know, to come up with solutions. And they themselves also implement those solutions. So I think that is really what I would say a collaborative governance can look like. But that is just one of, uh, you know, the many examples that uh, perhaps can happen in the future, right? But things take time. And that was, I would say, one small experiment that we recently have done and have shown some successes. But I think good participation goes beyond just that, because uh, over the past 10 years of the work we do, we also realized that, you know, um, even renegotiating the power relations between the state and the governance, government, it's also a very important part in a successful collaborative model. So just now Dawn talk about that co-creation model. I think that's a great step forward, but that takes time. And um, I think so far we actually realized that for projects that, are, that see more successes in, in PID tend to be the ones that allow agendas to be tweaked, right? Whereby citizens have a more say in, in terms of how they want to change the agenda. And of course, last but not least, um, I think increasing inclusion is also one thing. Um, for example, I mean, we have also observed the government have been taking more active approach in even setting up, you know, um, under the REACH program, right? Setting up in maybe um, town hubs or transport hubs to really hear from citizens. That, that is one step forward, um, I would say, to engage with citizens. But in the work we do in PID, I think we also want to make sure that, you know, we reach out to people that we usually don't get to hear from. That include your seniors, your students, or even people who don't speak English, right? How about their views? So I would say that over the years, the project we do, we have seen successes when these three key things are addressed uh, in terms of citizen engagement. And of course, we hope to share more in the discussion later, uh, but that pretty much summarizes uh, what we do in PID, and uh, I welcome questions later to talk more about it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Larry. So I heard you say things around capacity, around knowledge. Uh, it, is, it is a muscle for, for, that needs to be developed right, before we can even embark on, on such a journey. Uh, agendas need to be able to be tweaked. There needs to be that room, that flexibility. And I, I like the, the phrase and the narrative that you use for your, for your organization, which is uh, designing with people and not just for people. Uh, we've also seen that narrative around how it is, uh, we're not just doing things to you, but we're doing things for and with. Right, how that you know, starts to make that shift. And again, right time and right place for everything, right? Because if you commit a criminal act, something will be done to you, right? But there are definitely opportunities for the for and the with, right, to take place. Uh, and, and when you wrapped up, uh, Larry, you just triggered a, um, a, a reminder from earlier today. We, shot, we saw a short video where we had um, the farmers, and I think it was the wellness kampong, right? And then it was a very interesting reframe. It was seniors and then leaders, student, healers, and then farmer and giver. So just a quick recap for, for, for those of you who have just, just joined us. All right, thank you, Larry. And uh, Mel, you've been extremely busy in your neighborhood. Um, please share more about what's happening in Queenstown. Okay, um, so it's so nice to be here too because I see so many people who are friends and mentors and you know people who I admire greatly for all of the incredible things. And actually my dream, by the way, is that we don't 
do study trips to Scotland, but people come and do study trips in Singapore. You know, that they, that they come and see the amazing things that are happening here, because there are amazing things actually happening here too. Not to say that Scotland isn't awesome, um, and it's not fun to go, of course it is. Um, but I guess I, I'm not speaking to you really so much as a chairman or a CEO. I'm really gonna try and speak to you as a citizen and um, as a neighbor. And why share this little photo story, I guess that's kind of what it is, um, about, uh, about Queenstown. Um, well, it's, it's uh, I guess everybody made a big decision during COVID, right? Some people changed their jobs, some people you know, got married, some people you know, uh, had a baby, I, all kinds of different things you know, that people sort of ended up doing. I, I, I ended up moving house. And um, one of the reasons I, I, I did that was actually because I realized during COVID that um, you know, people who did really well during COVID, um, you know, connecting with their friends and, you know, catching up and building relationships and doing new stuff and everything like that were, were the people who were super connected and the people who were not connected, um, really isolated in, in a sense too, were the people who just did so poorly. And I asked myself, you know, what am I doing, not just in my job, but you know, in my life, like where I'm at, like where I live, you know, to be a good neighbor and to practice a form of um, making better connections around me. Um, and maybe that's something we could all, we could all do. So, okay, let's see. Uh, so I, I'll just, essentially what I would go through is just a little photo story with you. We, we entered into something that Design Singapore was doing called the Lovable Neighborhoods um, Boot Camp and um, just got a bunch of people together and, and we kind of didn't at all expect to win because it was a totally motley crew of people, but we, we won and then we were given $5,000, which sadly or strangely, you know, almost two years later, we are still struggling to spend because people keep showing up with like money and other stuff and, you know, things like that that, that don't necessitate us actually having to spend um, this, this uh, so it's a good problem, I suppose, in, in a way. Um, we got together and said, let's work on one location and two concepts. So I'm going to speak to you a little bit about where that is. This is the location. That's my house. Um, we started off, uh, thank God I have a corner terrace, which means I can connect with the little green space um, that's next door to me. And a good hoarding is a terrible thing to waste. Um, and so when my construction guy uh, put up an aluminum hoarding, I said, hey, let's just let's take the opportunity to create like a community mural you know, around that. And so what we, what we did was we said, hey, look, let's, let's find an artist that's from the neighborhood. So we found Barry Yao, um, and he, get, he created a neighbor price. Um, and we, we said, listen, let's just ask the question, what are your hopes for 2022? The, 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 the house faces actually the Queenstown Polyclinic. And I figure anybody exiting the polyclinic could use a little hope. Um, and so we thought, you know, why not create something that invites um, people to just participate in that and also just express what their hopes might be for the year. And that's part of that is still up actually at the moment because I can't bear to remove it. Um, but uh, when it was done, and this is partly what it looks like, I also donated it to um, the community center, so it is part of their uh, community garden now too. And what what was needed when we just began? Well, it was just acting a little bit like an idiot and just going out there and saying hello to people um, and uh, and and just getting a chair and some kopi and some little table and just saying hi. Um, 
And essentially what you need to know about the group, which we kind of ended up calling the, the, Queenstown, the Queenstown Cockies, was that we wanted to create a place of genuine welcome, you know, where everyone would feel safe and, and part of, part of part of it. Um, we wanted to find out how we could discover and share our joys, like what was what we're really good at, you know, <laughs> um, because that's how you get strong too, is sharing, you know, partly what is your joy. And then we wanted to prototype what we thought might be possible in a neighborhood. So this is my dining table, and I've always thought that, that you know, a house should have a really long dining table, so I have a long dining table. Um, and it just invited people, and literally we have like five years old, 83 years old, um, that are that are there, and they come together, and I bought all the red stuff, because that's our color, um, off of Carousel, so those are really great Mi Rebus plates um, that were, you know, being sold for a song. Um, and everybody gets together to kind of just discuss, like, you know, what 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 are we interested in? You know, what's what's something that you could share? Um, and how could we we ask them too? You know, well, what are your hopes actually um, for for the year ahead? And and um, and just listened actually. And uh, and there was a core group, and we said, look, you know, why don't we ask? the core group too, you know, what do you want to see in this community and, and, and how should we organize ourselves? How should we norm what it is that we do? What's important to you? And of course, somebody was really good at like, you know, these workshoppy types of things and helped us organize a workshop and, you know, post it. So that makes it really legit. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and people just, you know, shared, shared what they thought were um, different ideas and also how we wanted to work together. So the two ideas that we worked on, this one's a little bit of a fail, but I'll go through it anyway, um, was the idea that in a place we might need pop-up apparatus, you know, stuff that was the minimum viable stuff that you need to, to actually help host a pop-up picnic, a pop-up party, a pop-up, I don't know, something, pop-up something or another, you know, well, what would you need? Uh, well, I guess something to sit on maybe, um, and, you know, something to put stuff on, like a tarp or something, and, you know, so then they thought, oh, okay, well, you know, Decathlon has a ton of this kind of stuff, and so does Ikea, and I said it's fail for now because we didn't get any response um, for, from, from them, but that's okay, uh, and essentially what, what happens now is that we have a bunch of stools and, a, and little, like, portable tables, um, which we just bring out, and, um, and that goes into the, uh, that goes into the, the, the uh, green space outside uh, whenever something wants to happen. Much more effective, actually, is the idea of the happiness host. And, and the happiness host is really um, someone who uh, brings what really is their joy and their interest um, to share with others. So at this point, you know, happiness, there's three main teams, the, 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 the gardening team, the arts and craft team, um, oh, sorry, but there's actually a music team. And then the underlying one, which everybody loves, is the food team, right? Because food kind of really brings everybody together. So we've had all kinds of things from like jumble sales where people can, you know, uh, you know, bring pre-loved items and, and share with those things to little music activities. And that was the, the um, Chinese New Year um, activity there too. And, and I tell you, I've just been so humbled by the incredible generosity of my neighbors. I, I, the house is next door to three rental blocks and my rental block neighbors are the ones who constantly feed me. Um, and constantly bring food. So that huge vat of Mirabus out there is actually from, from one of the neighbors. And another, you know, another one brought you know, um, an incredible 
like papaya pickle. I mean, there's <laughs> all kinds of things that you know people end up doing, um, sharing their skills and their resources. Um, this is a, a, a little uh, burgadil and um, misoto uh, class, like cooking class that was actually held in my kitchen. And uh, another friend actually hosts uh, uh, gym classes for seniors, um, so was also reaching out to, to do that. And, you know, I always find that the holidays are kind of the time when people celebrate, but they can also be really lonely times. Um, and so, um, you know, I always host something on the eve of a public holiday, uh, eve of Christmas, eve of Chinese New Year, and things like that, too, to just make sure that at least if there's somebody who you know wanted to hang out and 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 do something together that we that we could do that um so uh you're all welcome to join um or start your own next year <laughs> if you would like um we reached out to different institutions that were in the neighborhood too so um SCDF there's the Alexander Fire Station and this the neighborhood school uh, looking for mentors for the kids, and again, that's just all of this kind of stuff is a little bit, you know, in in process, um, you know, for us. Working with the library, um, you know, uh, engaging also the town council and people's association um, for certain things as well. And I, I think I'm a little over time. I apologize. Uh, so anyway, just mapping out kind of the who's who in the group and just realizing you probably have a core core and then you have like groups of people that are around that. But, you know, the idea is, is that you people are it's dynamic. You know, there will be times when people will step up and there will be times when people step back. But but it's OK. You just keep nurturing the kind of core um, and that and that um, grows it. So uh, maybe I'll just end here to just talk about the five key mindset shifts um, that we had. First was that it's not about giving so much as it is about mutuality, um, because the mutuality recognizes the value that everybody brings to the table um, and how important it is in building relationships. Secondly, having no agenda be the agenda. Like, people would always ask us, hmm, are you from, like, the government, or are you from a religious group, or are you from, and we're like, no, no agenda, we don't actually, and like, I don't know why they always think that they have agendas, but like, I, I, we're, we're not here with any agenda, you know, and we just, we're just your neighbor, come and have some coffee. Um, and third is really just doing fun stuff, actually, you know, we collaborated with a group of like young architects, and, and they created like a pop-up playground in there, and so doing things that really like bring like a sense of play and fun, music and things like that is really, really important to, to that whole um, process. It just is very disarming in some ways. Um, and then, you know, just really uh, inviting people to reimagine the community and, and the future together too. I mean, people are never asked, like, what is your hope? Like, you know, for something. People are never asked, what do you want this community to look like and how can you be part of that? Like, just. Just, I think that part is so powerful. And then finally, just um, actually authentic gatherings. I mean, really what it is is just having meals with people. I mean, just like everybody's welcome. Please come, you know, bring something, share it, and we'll all have a great time. So um, that's it. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Mel. It's a nice ending. It's not there anymore, but it says, uh, being neighbors, doing life. And uh, we saw uh, a little bit earlier uh, as well about agendas, right? And, and, and Larry's point also about being able to tweak the agenda. But if you don't even have an agenda, that's even more interesting or more flexible. 
Uh, I was going to pose the next question to the panel, and it was going to be, well, it, it is about uh, the vision of an empowered community. Uh, but then the answer will be just go to Queenstown like every other day. <laughs> but to be fair, to be fair, to be fair, uh, if we were to imagine, you know, just uh, taking a con concrete walkthrough through a, a day in a life, whether it's in our neighborhood, a community at work, where, where communities are fully empowered, or in other words, you know, where it is a situation where we are ridiculously successful, right? This is where it is. Now, what would that day look like? All right, and I'll, I'll ask the, the panelists shortly. I will just throw in a quick perspective uh, as an example. Uh, one of the, the portfolios that I, I look after has got to do with ground-ups, and these are groups of people who uh, voluntarily come together to self-organize an initiative that benefits the community. They are not registered, uh, they are, uh, and it's a, a not-for-profit. And in a situation where the community is fully empowered, how I would imagine my day or my team's day would change is that we would spend a lot less time trying to advocate, trying to nudge and explain to people the why but rather we would switch gears and just help to facilitate, to connect, to share information that would actually allow the community to, to really uh, advance the entire conversation. So that, that would be my, my, my quick example. And maybe if I could head over to Larry, right? And, and in a situation where, you know, this is a, a beautiful future, right? Communities are empowered. What would that look like for, for PID? How will you see things you know, change? Yeah, I would say as an intermediary, um, one big challenge, I believe a lot of people who do grammar will know, is really about educating your partners. <laughs> I think if we have an empowered community, I probably will run into less trouble convincing people in power why certain decisions have to be made because of what the people say on the ground. Um, because sometimes I would say that people on the ground may have a strong voice, but ultimately, you know, they just don't feel empowered enough to, to actually feel that they can make change. So they just accept the status for what it is. But in fact, I think it's always a guessing game, right, on the other side of the room, thinking that agencies will not be willing to listen, but they have not even asked because they just felt it's no use asking. But if they're empowered enough, I think they probably will really be more grounded and really be very more vocal about their needs. And I will see that as a really collaborative model happening whereby, you know, agencies trust the people and people trust the agencies and it'll make work for me a lot easier because as an intermediary, I do not need to spend so much effort to convince both sides to share different perspectives from the both ends. And of course, as a more empowered community, I will also say that like, um, people will take more ownership in terms of their solutions, right? Because a lot of times, you know, sometimes, um, how do I put it? They may have a lot of ideas, right? But they may not know how to really own the idea or in the long run sustain it because they don't have the skill sets to do it. But by being empowered and really knowing how to do it, they will know how to seek help, where to seek help. And then the solutions in the long run will not need so much hand-holding by either agencies or ourselves. But, you know, we help them to initiate the idea. But they themselves will be able to continue in the long run. And that's how I envision, you know, based on the groundwork I do as an empowered community. And I really hope that day is not that far. <laughs> right, Don? <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Larry. So less time convincing, more time helping, uh, less uh, hand-holding, and uh, hopefully encouraging people to at least to try to ask and, and really building on that trust component. Right? We, we heard trust a lot. I think we, we all can appreciate that it's a, it's a multi-sided street. 
right? Really being able to uh, trust the, the agencies and the agencies being able to trust uh, the community as well, which uh, nicely swings us into the collaborative governance space, you know, and in, uh, in an empowered community, how, Don, would you see some of these, you know, what would change? What is, what is your day, how would your day look like, you know, in a fully empowered community? Yeah, so maybe I'll take this from two perspectives. One is the perspective of the citizen and the other is the perspective of a government person. So from the citizen angle, uh, there's a guy by the name of John Alexander who wrote a book called Citizens. And he mentions three different, I guess you could call them lenses. There's the subject lens with the king and the subject. The second is the consumer, where you're the person who sort of buys, chooses what you want to buy. And then the third is citizens, where you actually feel fully empowered to make decisions, to take actions, and to make change. And so I think for me, I would like to wake up in a day where citizens know when they can act as citizens and don't wait for somebody else to do something, that they will step forward if they see a problem, find ways to solve it. Of course, some things only government can solve or you will need government, say, um, regulations uh, changed in order to solve. But where the, there's space for citizens to take action, my hope is citizens will do so. Uh, we tend to be a somewhat permission-seeking type of citizenry. Perhaps it's just our history where you know, government has been traditionally very strong. Um, and therefore, citizens always feel like they need to say, can I do this? Can I try that? Before they try something. Um, and I remember a, a, a friend in the sector once saying, like, she ran a training program and with adults and uh, a participant in the course raised their hand to say, uh, please, may I go to the toilet? And she's like, this is adults. I mean, do you really need to be asking permission to uh, use the washroom? So uh, I hope to wake up in a day where citizens don't feel like they need to seek permission so much and feel empowered to take action where there's space to do so. We saw a lot of that uh, happening in COVID. Uh, one example I love is one day I went into, during COVID, I went into my lift and someone had put, using um, those plastic strappy uh, ties and strapped uh, hand sanitizer there. And that was during a time when hand sanitizer was in short supply. Whoever this person was didn't ask you know, is this sustainable? Am I breaking some rule? Do I have to have permission? Is this some fire hazard or something hazard, etc.? The person just put it there and it was clear what it was there for. And I think me as a person who lived in the block didn't ask, is this safe to use? What if it's toxic? You know, so there was a certain unspoken trust that this person in good faith had put hand sanitizer there. I'd love to see more of this kind of thing happening. And then maybe quickly on the government side of things, um, we are a large government, uh, about 140,000 public officers altogether, so it's not a ship that will turn quickly. Uh, I hope a day will come whenever we want to put together a policy or program, our default will be to first of all ask which partners on the ground we can work with, what assets are already available on the ground before we start designing our policies and programs. What this means actually is that we do need to set aside a period of time just to do some deep listening before we take action. We're a, a government that is action-oriented, like action men, Marvel character, that kind of thing. And it's good, it's good that you, you want to take action and take it quickly, especially in a crisis. Um, but my hope is that we reach a point where our default is to think in collaborative terms before we put action plans into place. Thank you, Don. Uh, I'll, I'll just make a, a quick comment on this point as well. 
as a to recognize a sort of dynamic, and we might have heard this a little bit earlier as well, and that is the, the dynamic between gov and civil society. Right? Is it you need you need gov to not do well to allow civil society to rise, or does it have to be the other way around? It doesn't have to be. Our, okay, this is the how might we, yeah? The how might we is that it did not be a zero-sum game, right? Like, what if we could have both strong gov and strong civil society? I know hypothetical, theoretical, but it is, it is a question that is, is useful to think about because traditionally, we, we tend to see one side or the other. Okay, uh, we heard a little bit about Queenstown, but, you know, the biggest room in the world is the room for improvement. So... What's, uh, <laughs> what would a perfect community look like, like when it's fully empowered? Like, what else would you see, Mel? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm actually, I'm a bit more of a live in the future type of person in, in some ways. So I, I think, I think I tried to design things in the house on the basis of what could it be, not what it is. And so, but I think there's a couple things. One is really just to have incredible intentionality um, and just be really willing to kind of like try and fail a lot. Um, you know, so for example, uh, there was a gate, I mean, around my house originally, and I, and I, just, I wanted to take it down because I said a gate doesn't really facilitate being connected with people, right? Uh, and then people were like, hey, you know, people are going to walk into your house and, you know, the people are going to take your things. And, like, you know, I was like, oh, no. But, but you know, maybe, 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 maybe they won't. And, and, you know, maybe the best way to have security is to know people, you know, and just to have good relationships with your neighbors and not just a big fence or a big gate. Um, and so I put plants on one side and I put, like, a, a low, a low um, seating, which a little, yeah, I guess demarcated space, but, you know, was a way that people could feel like they could be connected. And, um, you know, I think that facilitates. And so far, no one has broken in. I've had a drunk uncle kind of fall asleep on my porch, you know, um, one day. But I really just, and I know him, he's totally harmless. Um, and he's just, he lives alone and he doesn't have any friends. So I'm like, okay, if you're going to fall asleep on my patio, it's, it's okay. Um, I think a, a, a great day for me, though, because my whole home is so open, is to actually have private time, like personal time for myself. So my day would definitely start with like quiet time, like nobody else, you know, kind of thing, you know, but for myself. Um, and that's what I would do for myself. Then I think the other part of it is is, is just since since um since I have a little patch of grass which technically isn't mine, sorry, and parks, um, you know, but uh, I've just converted it into a little community garden, um, and I had a neighbor come the other day who was trying to be helpful to kind of like create a little like fence, like a little green mesh thing around it. I said, please take it down, please take it down, please take it down, you know, because actually it's a community garden, which means it's open. And I know he was trying to sort of demarcate a sense of private property, but I was like, it's not my private property anyway, you know, um, it's actually public property. So it's okay if people take the pandan and they take the, the, the my, my lima purut leaves and basil and it's okay it's okay because other people are putting other stuff into it too you know um, so I think an empowered community would be able to resolve those kinds of like issues easily and and um, I think uh, so an another thing that we've been kind of testing out too is is uh, reading classes just for kids and and it's um, uh, my sister and a couple other you know college friends neighbors um, who come and just do reading with like other kids in the neighborhood I mean 
not that hard actually, but I, I would love to see more of that kind of thing. And actually older kids can teach younger kids um, to do those kinds of things too, which um, is really great for their own family, like bonding and, and um, you know, character development and things like that for the kids as well. Um, and actually, interestingly, one of the kids whose dad you know, is, is the one who helps with the gardening, is the one who also attends the, the reading class. And I know he's like, he keeps saying, don't pay me, don't pay me. Of course, I need to pay him something, but I, it's a sense of reciprocity. Like he just wants to be able to give me something back for looking out for his son. Um, and I think the, the other thing too that I do do in my home is actually host like a lot of people who are CEOs or entrepreneurs or, um, you know, people of means and influence over too. And, 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 I, and I seek to create those as opportunities to also uh, introduce and cross-fertilize um, so that we'll curate a very diverse set of people who come to dinner um, and almost because people who design these things know, you know, you can design programming actually to facilitate a very human interaction. Um, I remember one time I hosted a dinner where um, there was a guy who was the CEO of a bank, you know, um, that was there, and and actually the woman sitting next to him, I didn't know, was actually my friend who is the chef who who was cooking for us, who lives in the rental block next door. His sister is a cleaner in the building that he was at, but they were let's all enjoy the great food together, you know? And I think that that, to me, is also an empowered community where there isn't, like, a lot of um, distinctions, you know, based on the normal ways that we evaluate people and, and categorize people, but we just start to see each other as sort of friends and neighbors. So, I'll stop. Thank you, Mel. So it's a bit of, sort of a different type of equality, the kind of experience, and... I think on the, the gardening example that you gave you know, earlier, there was a, a comment about you know, it was so difficult just to go and take a curry leaf uh, from, from this uh, community garden. And I think the starting point, and, and, and Mel shared this uh, earlier before. Take a curry leaf from my, my, my yeah, it's, if the starting point, If the starting point is that this is meant to be shared, right, then it changes, it changes the convo, it changes the framing. Okay, uh, I, I've got one or two questions, and then and then we can open up to the floor, um, either through the mics or uh, through the the system. Uh, the question I have for the panel, very quickly, and maybe just one quick, uh, one or two quick points around it is, what is hindering us from getting to to this desired state? Right, I I, I think um, Dawn, you might have mentioned, alluded a little bit to it in terms of, uh, I guess, a permission-seeking culture, like thoughts, ideas, perspectives around what could, could just be a half step to shift that or other factors. Any thoughts? So again, I'll take the two lenses, the citizen lens and the government lens. So on the citizen side, I think it's in part about risk. Uh, I've had the great privilege of uh, having dinner at um, uh, Melissa's table and the drunk uncle she talked about came that night. And I thought to myself, Mel, you're nuts. You're really nuts that a total, like someone who's drunk can just walk to your door and knock on the... And it's because Melissa's willing to take a big risk. Uh, and so I think that even though I put out this uh, invitation, right, for us to just step forward, take some action, the bigger the action, the higher the risk. So there must be some, I guess, uh, appetite for risk in all of us to do, uh, to do something. Um, 
So that's on the citizen end. And then I think on the government end, there's, oh my gosh, a myriad of factors. But uh, I alluded to one of them, I think, which is about time, where Singapore is a country in a hurry, and government is often also in a hurry. We like to get things done quickly, efficiently, practically. And uh, both Larry and Melissa, I think, alluded to the fact that you need to build relationships, you need to build trust. Uh, I'm sure trust has come up a number of times in this conference as well. And that takes time, it takes effort, and it takes a certain sort of blindness to KPIs. I'm, if I want to build a trusting relationship, I can't be staring at KPIs all the time, because if I do, then the relationship becomes secondary, right? The relationship must be valuable in and of itself. And so I think for the government end of things, that's probably the, the one thing that's hindering us, that relationships take time, we can be in a little bit of a hurry. Uh, my hope, I think I see it changing, and my hope is that uh, it changes faster rather than slower. Nice. How, how about you, Larry? Any, any quick thoughts on, on what's hindering us? I think very simple words. It's really just about lack of trust on both ends. Trust, lack of trust from the state uh, to the people and lack of trust sometimes from the people to the state because both sides assume the worst of people and, and like what Don said, it's the risk. None of, none of the other side want to take the risk, you know, because we run into so much issues, right? For example, uh, I remember one example. Uh, we actually wrote into a certain agency to ask to paint on the roads. Uh, quite sure, uh, okay. <laughs> uh, and, and the agency actually came back and said like, oh no, you know, we have not done a, a, a road mural before on the pedestrian street, you know, and they said, no, no, you guys can't do it. But the community, the advisors, and we were asking ourselves, actually, you know, what harm is there? So agency were telling us, like, oh, people may sleep and fall, you know, the painting, all this. So we tried to negotiate. We said, you know, what if we use painting, you use for the roads? I mean, if you can use for the roads, you can use for the pavement, right? No, we have not done this before. We, we can't do it. You know, I don't know who to look for. So we wrote into LT, uh, the agency. <laughs> we wrote into the agency and uh, agency the agency not uh, decided uh, not to, not to. I mean, they, they didn't respond because they have not done it before. We wrote into different kind of uh, the, the agencies and, and none gave us any advice. So, you know, we took the decision to say, well, let's just do it. And, you know, it's okay. So we told them we will do it first, but we will remove it later on. We did it. You know, the community love it. And, and eventually the thing was still there until today, right? And, and I mean, we took the risk and agencies trusted that we would do it right and remove it, but end up they see the benefits themselves. The residents love it, so they left it there. And now I have sometimes the certain agency write into me, hey, what were the specs that you use for the roadmate? And I'm like, and I'm like, okay, but we started something, right? And and, and now everybody knows it can be done and, and more of this can be replicated. But that was the risk that the community chose to take. And it managed to convince the other side to say, oh actually it's okay, I can try it out, and, and that's fine. So uh, I feel that if we have more of this kind of trust, uh, that will be great, but that trust needs to be built over time, and, uh, you know, and, and, and that will take time to kind of build. Up. So that's my take on it, yeah. Very nice. I think it was just that catalytic action, right? That, that first step that uh, kind of opened that door, and yes, I think we can all appreciate that for many agencies, a lot of times, whether is it public safety or they have certain... Uh, responsibilities and accountability, so it's not easy to step out of that lane. So yeah, I think we can appreciate you know, on both sides, right? And and maybe another thing to talk about trust, right? Since, since it has come up quite a bit, there's one thing to build trust, and and that long the time that you need to do that and that relationship. But I would add, there's also something to be said about rebuilding trust. Being human we are going to have a situation where something goes wrong, right? And we've heard the saying, right? Trust is 
built in drops but lost in buckets. So just to throw it out there, that even as we think about this building of trust, how do you also consider how do you rebuild it when something doesn't work? Mel, yeah. hindering. Well, maybe, 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 maybe I'll, I'll answer it in a way that we kind of talk about how do you rebuild it in a way too. Because, I mean, I, I, the first thing that did come to mind was just a variation on this risk view, which is the willingness of, of citizens to actually be responsible. I mean, actually it's, actually, it's everybody responsible. I mean, you know, the willingness to kind of like just say, I'll take it, whatever the consequence happens to be. Um, because I think we get stuck in this strange little conundrum. Because on one hand, I mean, truth be told, actually, we were told to stop doing the pop-ups actually outside my house because there's some works that are being done, you know, in the neighborhood. And we're like, well, when, when are they actually being done? Because, you know, it hasn't been done for, you know, months. And then actually it was just done last week. And then I was thinking, like, you know, you kind of canceled, you know, all of this stuff because... You couldn't, but then, but then they just wanted, but then, but then I understand where they're coming from. They're like, you know, you don't want, um, uh, we don't want people complaining that this is happening or somebody falls down, gets hurt, whatever, all that kind of stuff. So they just kind of create a blanket decision. So if, if on one hand, they would be willing to be responsible for, um, uh, you know, just saying it's okay. But then on the other hand, citizens also need to be responsible for themselves, you know, in case something does go wrong, you know, and, and, and to be okay with that too. Um, so I think one is the willingness to be responsible. But I think the other one is really also the, the um, be willing to not take any credit. I mean, I think that's also really important when it comes to this, and especially with rebuilding trust, just having the humility to kind of go back and not hold any kind of grudge or wounds or whatever and just murmur, 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 bitch and moan, you know, about stuff, but just kind of get over it, you know, I mean, and just say, you know, how can we do this again? And, and you know, when they go back to you and say, hey, could we see the specs? Don't be, oh, well, you, you shouldn't ask me in the first place, you know, I mean, <laughs> it's just, you know, just share it, right? I mean, how to, how to, how to, how to practice that that spirit, I think, a little bit more. I mean, it's, it's human, I know, but, you know, and then just do it. Nice, nice, thank you. I, I had a question on the role of leadership in community empowerment, but I heard a little bit of the answers as well, you know, just, just from the conversation, because it sounded like there's a component or an aspect of the willingness to take responsibility. It sounded like um, being willing to not take any credit. Uh, it also sounded like being able to take risks Right, so maybe before I open up to the floor, any last comments on anything particular about the role of leadership in community empowerment? Anyone? I'll say one thing, which is, but please start going to go next to it, which, which is something that has really struck me. Like normally I act in a situation from a position of strength. Like it's because I can do things. It's because I know things. It's 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 coming to share what I have, you know, in a sense. And and actually, what I've learned in a lot of community leadership is the only way that things like actually move and the way that community does come in is because I'm I'm totally a bumbling idiot and don't know how to do a ton of things, you know. And so, um, you know, literally, like my first interaction with the, the chef who, is, you know, supplies amazing sort of like food, so I, I want to sign him up for Johan's inclusive business, you know, incubator thing, um, was literally me standing at my, my, outside my house, like sweeping my leaves, like, 
to the left and sweeping my leaves to the right, just kind of standing there trying to, you know, make contact with anybody who would like look at me in the eye, you know, and, and, and just be like, hi, 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 you know, kind of thing. And, and, and I was asking the question, I was like, so, so, as like, um, hi, so do you live here? He's like, yes. I was like, oh, so, so what do you do, you know? And, and he's like, oh, I'm a chef. I'm like, I need a chef, you know? And, and it's really because I can't really, you know, cook great food for lots of people that, that, that actually we ended up starting the conversation and having now a great kind of like relationship. So it's really on the basis of need and lack and, and disability rather than ability and strength, interestingly, on my part, actually, that, 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 um, that the community has come together. Thank you, Mel. Sorry, Don, you, you had a thought. Yeah, I was just going to throw in a quick thought about the distinction between being fail-safe and safe-fail. So fail-safe is when it has to go perfectly, right? And I think a lot of government is run that way. I mean, HDB blocks have to be fail-safe. You don't want, like, maybe we take the risk here and try some different thing and then the building falls down. So there are certain things government does that has to be fail-safe. But if, uh, and this is to your point about leadership, it's as a leader being aware of when it's time to try an experiment and then create a space where it's safe to fail. Uh, in government, in recent years, we've been experimenting with regulatory sandboxes. So this is where you create some boundaries and then companies or uh, whoever can come in and try new ideas. And if things mess up, it's okay because you've created a sandbox around it, right? So this has been done by MAS for some fintech companies, also by, I think, MOH in uh, telemedicine. And really, this is to give uh, us the space to try things. And if uh, mistakes happen, we've accounted for it already. So I think uh, for, for leaders, uh, taking risk and creating bound safety zones so that you can take risks safely will be very helpful. Nice. Thank you, Don. Larry, any quick thoughts? Or? Actually, I think Dawn had really said what I wanted to say as well. But just to add on to that, I think as young leaders, I always say we need to talk more about the F word, you know, like fail, uh, don't get me wrong. <laughs> Failure, the F word. Uh, because, because I think we have not celebrated that enough. You know, we often talk about successes, but even in the work we do in PID, uh, participate in design, we are not successful all the time. In fact, we fail a lot of times sometimes, right? We sometimes get into some trouble somewhere, but... You know, I think as a leadership role, someone taking a leadership role, be it myself or anyone doing community work, I think like what Don said, is really creating that boundary for failure and embrace it because there's really nothing to, to hide when you fail because that's where you really learn from it and that's where you really know what things can work in the future. So for me, yeah, role of leadership is really embrace the F word. It's perfectly fine. <laughs> right. Nice. This reminds me of a conversation I think we had with Justin last year about the idea, you, you had this idea about a, a failure conference where everybody would come and share their greatest failures. Yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> we, we, we still have a bit of a journey. Okay, at this point, I'd uh, just like to invite, you know, any questions from the floor or you'd like to use the, the poll. Uh, I think I'll, we'll be more than happy to, to address any of these questions. Anybody yeah, thoughts, comments, reflections, anyone? It is 4.54. <laughs> is there a question? Oh, yes, thank you very much. Come, come, come. Thank you. Wonderful. Okay, hello, um, I'm Angeline George from Swiss Cottage Secondary School. 
my question is on the topic of collaborative governance. So, how does collaborative governance impact decision making and policy development in a democratic society? Sorry, could you just repeat the last part? How does it affect decision making and what? Decision, decision making and policy development in a, de in a democratic society. Yeah, that's a very broad question. Thank you very much. Um, what is your name again? Angeline George. Angelina George. Can I ask you what you think the answer is? <laughs> not bad, right? Not bad, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, what, what are some initial thoughts you might have? How do you think it might affect decision making if we take a collaborative approach? There'll be more time needed because you have to like gather everyone's information and like, everyone's opinion. Yeah, yeah. Anything else? <laughs> yeah. Um. Not to cast a pall on anyone else wanting to ask questions. Um, no, let's hold that. So I think time is a really good answer. And I, I think I alluded to the fact that that's one of the challenges for us, that it will add um, a measure of time if we want to uh, assess what assets are on the ground already, what stakeholders or partners we might work with. So that's one thing. The other thing is, what if um, different parties on the ground hold different points of view, right? That's, that's always a challenge. And in a very diverse and democratic, you use the word democratic society like Singapore, we're bound to have a range of views. And landing on enough consensus will be a big challenge. If you look at the world around us, um, I mean, countries appear to be polarizing and fragmenting not helped by social media and algorithms that sort of put us maybe into echo chambers more and more. And so those are the, the big challenges. So for Singapore, I think one um, perspective I often hold, whether you're a citizen or a civil servant, is to make space in your life every day to expose yourself to a view that is different from your own. Um, if you find yourself hearing just from people like yourself or everyone agrees with you and you agree with everyone, something's probably wrong. It means that you've uh, probably narrowed your vision a little bit and narrowed your channels, narrowed your feeds too much. So see what you can do, I think, to, to open up that space. Yeah. Does, does that answer the question? Yes. Thank, Thank you, you, Angeline. I have a second question. You have a... Are you? <laughs> <laughs> Please, go ahead. So, um, what role does non-governmental organisations specifically play in collaborative governance? So, so um, I think the question was, what role does a non-profit or non-government organisations play, right? I, I think in Singapore, we are a very unique society. You know, we have, a, I would say, a rather strong government. Um, and I feel that, you know, if you look at other democratic countries, sometimes um, the non-government groups can be quite, I should use the word vocal, right? Very vocal. And sometimes can take a quite extreme view of things. Um, but I just think in Singapore, that model may, may not sit well with agencies sometimes. You know, when you're too extreme, like I said, the trust, right? Like, you know, you appear to be very vocal. They tend to be more guarded against you. But for us, we feel that, you know, what role can non-government um, agencies play? I think it's really a more supportive role. For example, right? Don't talk a little bit about, you know, getting citizens involved. But, but for us, it's really about like, if you want the citizens to be involved, then what can we do to build their capacity so that they can contribute better to whatever policies are out there? So one example, uh, for example, HDB have this program called the Neighbourhood Renewal Program, right, whereby they will upgrade, they will have a sum of money for residents um, to 
come together, right, to decide how this money can actually be used. So we actually started this thing called participatory budgeting, whereby we actually um, want to get citizens involved in deciding how much money they can use for this upgrading. But for this to work, we also realized that sometimes when you just give the money to that, you know, I have residents who tell me, uh, I want to have a lot of trees. That's my first priority. But when we ask them how much money we'll put to plant trees, they actually tell us I will assign $0 to it. And we ask them, you know, why? You say trees are so important, but, but why $0? And they said, trees are free, what? You need money to plant trees, man? <laughs> and, and, and that to me was not, I mean, it may sound very funny, right? But if you think one step better, it's because they're not equipped with the knowledge that trees actually cost money. And then we told them, you know, actually one tree on the street costs around $1,000 a year to maintain. Yeah, so you all know, uh, Singapore, the trees, $1,000 a year, almost, on average, to maintain. And, and that was when they were, wow, I didn't know that a tree in our neighborhood cost so much. But, but all this, again, are capacity building and knowledge sharing, um, which will take time. So if you want to be more democratic, you also have to make sure that your citizens are ready with the skill sets to make more informed decisions. And, and we see ourselves as you know, intermediaries to provide that knowledge for them to make a more informed decision. So for me, more in the spatial architectural way of doing things. But you know, social workers can also provide you know, that kind of um, knowledge for whatever field they are in. Yeah, so I, I see myself in that position. But um, Mel, any thoughts on that from your Just perspective? Just one thought, actually, and that is that actually people need to be reminded that their voice matters. And actually, if that's one thing that we can do as not-for-profit organizations or as just leaders or even citizens to remind one another, actually, that your voice matters. Thank you. Thank you. Maybe we have time for one last question. Anyone? Please. Yeah. Hi, uh, I'm Dolphy from LKYCIC, and uh, thank you so much for your sharing. I was really um, enlightened by all of this, when, and especially when you were talking about how empowering people, uh, what that looks like, and um, I just wanted to ask about, and this issue of community gardens pops up a lot, and so uh, it's that I, I feel like community has to involve some form of negotiation and some form of conflict as well, and I realize that in Singaporean society, I, I notice that people are quite confrontation averse, so conflict averse, and I was wondering, um, we're wanting to have communities, but we're not ready to have the conversations that allow for communities to happen through negotiation and um, conflicts. So I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on how to train up a population, so equip people to speak about their issues more in a way that's like uh, considerate towards one another and also being brave enough to confront those things. Thank you. Larry, from a capacity building <laughs> thought, any, just a quick one. Well, that's a very, very tough question. Um, but, but, but in fact, I, I must say, you know, in the work we do, we have conflicts all the time, 100% of the time. If I tell you one project, there's no conflict, I'm lying. Um, uh, but I think how it resolves, I think it's really allowing and designing for processes 
for different people to hear the different point of view. They may not agree, but at least they hear the perspective. Um, let me just give one example to illustrate my point. Um, there was one person, again, during the Naval Renewal Program, um, you know, we got people to say, you know, to come down to brainstorm ideas with us. And I have this very angry uncle who came, and he said, you know, I'm here. You asked me to give ideas, right? My idea is very simple. I'm just here to remove the basketball court downstairs because it is so noisy. You know, he was so angry. So whatever we discuss, he just keep going back to the point on removing the basketball court. But I thought that was a very powerful moment in the discussion because I, I started to say, okay, no, I understand your point, Mr. So-and-so, but what do the rest of you think? And um, there was a uh, you know, lady in her 60s and 70s. He asked the gentleman, if you were to remove that basketball court, you know, can you just show me where is the nearest one for us? And the uncle then realized the nearest basketball court in the map are three bus stops away. And the auntie asked uh, the gentleman and said, you know, so Mr. So-and-so, if you take away the basketball court, you know, we are our seniors. Where are we going to exercise and have our classes? There's absolutely nowhere. And then the student also asked, you know, actually, same thing, you know, this is near my school and I got to walk three bus stops away. It's very far for me as well. And, and then the uncle started to really be a bit more, um, less aggressive. And so the whole team decided to say, you know, but we understand your pain point. So perhaps in this upgrading, can we perhaps find ways so that we can reduce the noise disturbance to Mr. So-and-so? And then they co-created solutions, you know, instead of removing the basketball court, they thought about ways we can allocate some budget or some ideas to, you know, perhaps either close the basketball court at certain times or making, the, you know, the basketball thing, the hook a bit less, uh, you know, sound resistant, for example. So I would say that, you know, these are the things, you know, when you create that platform to hear perspective, we may not solve the issue, but it will allow people to empathize. And I think that is a good starting point. You know, we can't resolve everything, but we start somewhere. Yeah, but I'm not sure whether Don, you know, in your line of work, perhaps, do you have more to share? No, thank, thank you, Larry. That's such a great example. And I think that it's really about... Um, so I, I talked earlier in response to Angeline's question about hearing a point of view that's different from your own. And that's the first step, because you must be prepared to take a perspective different from your own, to hear it, understand it, sort of wear the other person's shoes. And then from, at, from there, be able to learn how to negotiate or find a compromise uh, outcome. So I think as a society, we need to grow those muscles and capabilities. Some of it, government must take responsibility for. So uh, I mentioned Fort Singapore just now. One of the things we try to do in the Fort Singapore exercise is bring people of different maybe gender, age, um, backgrounds together so they can hear different points of view. A great example of this um, is the public housing uh, conversations under Fort Singapore that was done by the Ministry of National Development. And they actually use a really clever technique, which is uh, role-playing cards. You came in, you were given a role card, which may not be your own. So they had first-timers, second-timers, seniors, maybe a low-income household. And wearing that role you were asked to decide how to allocate public housing. So it's these kinds of exercises that government can play a role in helping us learn how to take a perspective uh, different from our own. And I think also organisations like Larry's can help to build that capability in the community. And people like Melissa too, bringing community together to actually do things together uh, is another great way of practically bringing that to life. Yeah. I think we need to frame conflict differently. We, fr we frame conflict as something where if, where is, that's bad and therefore either or that's scary. And so, therefore, we want to avoid it and, like, you know, just ignore it in a sense, too, right? But it, to, the, to what extent can we frame conflict as um, the beginning of a better relationship? 
you know, and maybe that's why people are motivated to do it in marriage or with like with their kids, right? Because they're like, we need a better relationship, you know, and, and they got to focus on that. Um, so part of it is a framing it as a key to a better relationship and maybe figuring out how we how we make relationship building in the public sphere, not just in the private sphere, um, a priority. And then I think the third question is, how do we frame conflict transformation? So I'm, I'm saying, you know, working through conflict to getting to a good place as conflict transformation rather than just conflict resolution or conflict management as being a win for all. And, and so I'm just going to little plug for my old organization, and some of the stuff we were doing with Colabs, which was around complex multi-stakeholder um, uh, you know, collaboration and problem solving in a sense, but like more around possibilities and aspirations, is to ask diverse members of, 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 a, of a community who might be in conflict, you know, what is something that we all want that none of us can do alone? What is something that we all want that none of us can do alone? And that creates the basis for the, 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 the opposing or divergent parties to then step forward. Um, so again, it's just reframing some of these issues. So that's just some thoughts for you. Can I jump in with a quick thought also? I just, just show your hands. Do you think fighting, and I don't mean physical fighting, but just fighting about ideas and, and, and landing points for a country. Do you think fighting is bad? Raise your hand if you think fighting is bad. Do you think fighting is... No, so nobody thinks fighting is bad? Or is it just very tired already? Do we mean disagreement? Do we mean violence? What do we mean? Yeah, I, I don't mean the physical fighting. I just mean when you're fighting over ideas and, you know, policies and, you know, whether you should build, put trees or basketball courts. Is fighting bad? Okay, I think you're also thinking about the question. I'm, uh, it could also be that you think no fighting is not bad. Uh, I think fighting is inevitable because different people have different points of view. I think what we need to learn to do is learn how to have clean fights. A clean fight is one where the two, three parties in, in, in the fight agree on what the ground rules of the fight are. And then you have a good clean fight and then you come to a resolution or maybe you decide, okay, this is where our fight is right now. We pause, take a break and come back for round two later on. But you must have some clean ways to fight because fighting is inevitable, especially the more diverse a society is. My sense is that we, have, we don't know how to fight cleanly. Uh, and I think what you were implying is that we're quite conflict avoidant. So a lot of it becomes very passive aggressive, you know? Like, I don't friend you, I don't talk to you. Everything's fine. Yeah, I'm fine. It's couples, right? You, those of you who are married know you, we sometimes get to this sort of passive aggressive space because we don't want to deal with the problem. So I think we do need to learn how to set up ground rules so that we can have good, clean fights. Learn how to fight well. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, we are out of time for this chat. So really, really a big round of applause for Dawn, Larry and Melissa. Thank you very much.